Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson, and today we have the privilege to record with Ray Rhodes. So welcome to the podcast, brother. Well, thank you, Austin, Jimmy. Great to be with you guys today. Yeah, we're going to be talking about your newest book that has been released, Yours Till Heaven. But before we uh, begin to dig into the content within that book, can you tell our audience a bit about yourself before we begin talking about Charles and Susie Spurgeon? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, my name is Ray Rhodes, and I've been married to Lori for 34 years. August 15th is my anniversary, so if you guys will send down some uh, anniversary gifts, that'll be great. <laughs> uh, we've got six daughters. Uh, three of them are married. Three are single. Uh, our youngest is nine. Our oldest is uh, around 30. Uh, six granddaughters, not daughters, six grandchildren. I've been pastoring for uh, over, what, 32 years or so. Uh, this church I'm in now, about 17 of those years. So this is where I'll probably, God willing, uh, finish up. So love, love being in one place and staying for the long haul. Uh, we're in Dawsonville, Georgia, which is about an hour due north of Atlanta, northernmost metro Atlanta County. Uh, Grace Community Church is the name of our church. And uh, we've, we're blessed. The Lord is growing our church in the midst of all the chaos in our culture right now with COVID and various things. We've actually grown in number during that time. So uh, thankful for that. Been writing for Moody. Uh, the first book came out in 2018. Uh, Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. This new book, Yours Till Heaven, came out in February of this year. Uh, Yours Till Heaven, and uh, that's that's going great. Uh, so I've actually been writing for Moody before that. Uh, it took a couple of years to do the first book, so I've been connected to them since 2000, probably around 2016. Love that relationship. They've done a great, great job, and uh, they've also they're also publishing some other Spurgeon stuff. Dr. Jason Allen has a couple of new books uh, on Spurgeon and Scripture and Spurgeon and Prayer that just been released from them as well. So appreciate their interest and investment in Spurgeon and uh, their support. Um, you had just mentioned um, your first biography titled, or your first book with Moody titled Susie. Um, could you go and start us off by giving us a biographical sketch of Susie? Yeah, Susie, uh, Susie Spurgeon was a Londoner for all of her life. She was born in 1832, uh, just a few years before Queen Victoria took the throne. Uh, and she died, Susie died in 1903. So 1832 to 1903 are her dates. Uh, Victoria died in 19. So Susie died in 1903, Victoria in 1901. So if you know anything about the Victorian era, Susie was that. All of her life was Victorian. 
she, like I said, lived, she was a city girl, lived in the city all of her life. The only time she really left London uh, for any length of time was to go to Paris. And in Paris, she learned to speak French. She uh, lived with a French, French pastor and his family there. So she, uh, uh, all of her life from the city, she was very cultured, uh, educated, uh, relatively prosperous, I think. Uh, it's sort of difficult to pin all of that down. Her dad seemed to be up and down financially, but connected to her life and family were people of means. And so she seems to have had a pretty cultured and relatively prosperous life. Uh, like most Victorians at that time, she would have been exposed to the Bible probably from the time of her childhood, uh, probably was from very familiar with the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, it was very common in Victorian era to have morning and evening devotionals. So it's likely that she, uh, that was her experience, that she was not actually converted until she was about 20 years old. She was, we think, converted in late 1852. She was attending the New Park Street Chapel prior to Spurgeon coming to town. So that's where she attended. Uh, pastor during her time there was named James Smith, and he was quite a prolific author as well. Not that well known today, but he wrote a number of books, very evangelistic ministry. But uh, she was actually attending a church in the city of London called the Poultry Chapel. And she heard an exposition of Romans chapter 10, and she believes that was the time in which her heart was awakened to the gospel and she came to know Christ. So that'd be late 1852. Uh, so Spurgeon comes, uh, Charles Spurgeon comes riding into town in 1853 just to preach at the church, and he becomes the pastor in April of 1854. Uh, and so she and uh, she, she's engaged to Charles Spurgeon in 1854, August of 1854, just a few months after he's been the pastor of the church. They have met, they've become acquainted, they're engaged. Uh, they uh, Spurgeon actually baptizes her in January. I think it's January of 1855, and they are married in January of 1856. Uh, and they are married for 36 years. Uh, about 10 years into her marriage, 10 or 12 years, uh, she had probably health problems from the beginning. Uh, they gave birth to twins. Uh, she gave birth to twins the first year of their marriage. They never had children again. So it's very likely she had health problems related to that uh, early in their marriage. And then by probably 10 years later, or 10 or 11 or 12 years later, she's pretty much homebound. She has surgery. She never really leaves home much again on rare occurrences. Later in Spurgeon's life, she is able to travel with him some. Uh, and she serves him faithfully. Uh, great support to him all of his life in ministry praying for him, joining him as she can in ministry endeavors, uh, travels with him those first years as much as possible, uh, raises her children, her boys, twin boys, who also become ministers of the gospel. She prays with them, leads in family worship when Spurgeon is away. And uh, she writes she writes five books uh, before she dies. Uh, three of them are devotional books. Two of them are um, sort of autobiographical, they tell the story of her book fund that she began in 1875 and continued throughout her life, giving away 200,000 books to poor pastors through that Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund. So uh, she was very invested in books and reading. She saw how that influenced her husband. 
She wanted other pastors, poor pastors to have books. And so she went to work to make that happen, starting with Spurgeon's volume one of lectures to my students, which was originally done in three volumes. Now you could get it in one volume. And she was so excited about that. She wanted to give those away. And ultimately, she had a lot of Spurgeon's sermons, The Sword and Trial, his monthly magazine, uh, lectures to my students, uh, others of his books, but also other authors that she trusted that were uh, godly uh, authors and solid theologically. She, so she wrote uh, two books related to the book fund, describing that ministry, the three devotional books. But also when she was engaged to Charles, one day they were sitting, he's, he's working on a sermon. This was sort of their date nights. Uh, she would, he would go over to her house and he would work uh, on editing the sermon he had just preached for publication. His sermons were published uh, weekly. And uh, so he would do that. She would sit quietly. But one night he handed her a volume from the Puritan Thomas Brooks. And he asked her if she would go through that and pull out some salient quotes and note those for him. And Spurgeon put together this book that she really had done. She chose the quotes. And it was called Smooth Stones Taken from Ancient Brooks, a play on the Puritan's name. And it's still available. You can get that from Banner of Truth. Uh, it's very hard to get one of the originals of that. I've not been able to get one. Uh, so if anybody's got one, you can send it to me. But uh, Susie says that uh, there's a love story that's not seen, that no one can read, that's happening between the pages of that book. So that was really her first publishing endeavor. Her name is not on the book, wasn't then, not now, even though she did the bulk of the work of that. So that's that book plus the five other books. And then at the end of her, uh, uh, towards the end of her life, in the late 1890s, uh, until about 1900 or 1901, she is a major contributor to and co-editor of the uh, autobiography of Spurgeon, which originally came out in four volumes. You can still get the unabridged edition today. It's increasingly difficult, but you can get it either an original on eBay pay two, two couple hundred dollars or whatever you can get it in from pilgrim publications which it's unabridged there or you can get the uh, somewhat abridged two volumes from banner of truth uh, and i forget exactly the titles that they have for that so that is absolutely essential reading for spurgeon and she had a lot to do with that uh, and she wrote a lot. She wrote the sections, especially on their marriage, their courtship and their relationship. She wrote a lot of that. So quite prolific as a writer. And she's afflicted. Again, most of her marriage, she's writing. She does the book fun. And one of the most remarkable things that I discovered about Susanna Spurgeon was, and really quite by accident, I was just thumbing through uh, one of the old Sword and Trowel magazines and found out about a church. It's called Beulah Baptist Church. It's located in Bexhill on Sea, which is about an hour south of London on the coast. Lovely place. Got to go there and visit this church a few years ago. Uh, and as I was reading, I found out that, well, Susanna Spurgeon essentially planted the church after Charles died. Uh, she is down there vacationing, not really so much vacationing, getting out of her house because it's being remodeled or painted. And while she's there, she said, is there a Baptist church in the area? 
Oh, not not if she said, where is the Baptist church? And uh, they said, ma'am, there's there's no Baptist church here. And that bothered her. So she went back home and started praying about that. And uh, the Lord led her to a, a pastor who had resigned his his pastorate. She challenged him to go to this place, Bexhill on Sea, and to take this church uh, that doesn't exist <laughs> to, to plant this church. And she supported that effort. She helped raise money. Uh, she gave her name and her energies and her efforts. She actually uh, came to some of the opening events uh, leading up to the building of that church. And there are, there's a, a nice marble plaque that has uh, a tribute to her that hangs in the church still today, as well as uh, some that are to her husband. Uh, so she's a she's an author. She is uh, an editor. She is a church planter. She is a, she gives away books, uh, and she's afflicted, and she's supporting Spurgeon throughout his life and ministry. And a lot of that stuff she does even after he has died, and she continues her book fund until uh, really pretty close to her dying day. And it continued on after her death and still continues. And some uh, people have taken off on her idea. There's a, a ministry now called Susanna Project. And so they have a book ministry. They're sending digital, they're sending Kindles with digital books to missionaries and pastors that are poor and various places around the world. So her ministry lives on. She died in 1903. Uh, she lived about 12 years after Spurgeon, 11 years after Spurgeon. Uh, she was in poor health, but died singing a hymn, essentially, a longing to go to heaven and longing to see Spurgeon, longing to see Charles and uh, worship the Lord with him around the throne of God. So that's sort of a scattered, smothered and covered uh, <laughs> overview of her life. We appreciate the biographical sketch you've given us on Susie Spurgeon. And so now we want to talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, Susie and Charles. So what can we learn from the prayer life of Charles and Susie? Yeah. One that they were consistent, uh, you know, Spurgeon, Spurgeon's prayer life is, uh, a bit interesting to some folks, I think perhaps because he, he really did not pray for a lengthy periods of time. Uh, we think of a Martin Luther who said, you know, I've got an especially busy day today, so I'll pray an extra hour. So he might spend two or three hours in prayer in the morning. Spurgeon really never did that, maybe once or twice in his life. But he was constantly praying. So he would, uh, you know, here's an example. He would be walking. Here's an, He was walking through the woods one day with one of his friends, and he, he told him a joke. And they were laughing together. And then Spurgeon said, let us pray. And he just hit his knees right there in mid, you know, midstream, and they prayed. That's the way he was. Uh, he prayed just spontaneously, brief prayers. He didn't really believe much in long prayers. He didn't believe in written prayers. He didn't appreciate too much folks that would pray prayers that had been written. He took that from John Bunyan, who also had that view. Uh, he he couldn't remember ever praying for probably more than an hour. I think he could remember that maybe one time. So he, he prayed like that. He prayed in family worship. Uh, there was a guest to his home and Spurgeon believed in family worship. He came from a grand, 
uh, grandparents and parents that led him, his mother especially, and his grandfather at his home. And so he, he was trained in that from the time of his youth. And he believed in most homes, ideally, that a, a father or and mother would be leading their family and family worship twice a day, uh, morning and evening. So there's the idea of his books, too, by the way. Morning by, they originally were published morning by morning and evening by evening. And now we see them primarily as morning and evening. But that was a designed as a help to family worship. He wrote a book called The Interpreter which is also very difficult to, to get. Uh, and in that book, he has a vision for families having family worship twice a day, which means that there'd be a scripture reading. There'd be some exposition of the passage. Again, not a full blown sermon or anything, but just some expl explanation of the passage. There would be prayer and there would be singing uh, a lot. And Spurgeon uh, felt that, you know, that should happen as, as frequently as possible, at least twice a day. Uh, but if a, he recognized some families would not be able to pull that off because of various circumstances twice a day. So in the book, The Interpreter, this aid to family worship, he also has uh, a plan for a family to only do family worship once a day. But what he didn't have a plan for or an idea of or concept of is that people would not have family worship. So they they would always, you know, any faithful Christian, Spurgeon believed, would have family worship. And again, he got that from the Puritans. He got that from his, his parents and grandparents. He employed that in his own life. And Susie said wherever they were, if they were traveling, it didn't matter. It was going to happen. If someone was at their home, so you might imagine someone visiting you uh, and you normally have family worship at uh, whatever time in the evening and your guests are there. Spurgeon said, you know, would say if your guests are there, you invite them to family worship. So you don't, you don't stop. You don't change the time. You don't do any of that. You say, we're about to have family worship. Would you join us? He expected that they would. Uh, Spurgeon also had uh, a number of employees that worked for him, that lived with him. Some of them. Uh, they called them servants in that day. They were not slaves. They were more like Downton Abbey, if you've ever seen that series, except for in Spurgeon's case, they were really very much like family. So uh, he loved them. They came to family worship uh, with him. And one of the guests at his home said that, you know, he heard Spurgeon preach, but nothing was more moving than hearing Spurgeon pray. How much he prayed about the, and thought about the preciousness of Jesus and the glory of the gospel and the wonder of God's word. And so he prayed. Uh, he prayed with Susie. He prayed on his own. He prayed with friends. He prayed in family worship. He said he would rather give up the sermon if he had to choose at the Metropolitan Tabernacle than give up the pastoral prayer. Well, he didn't want any, he didn't write any of that stuff down, but there were people that recorded those uh, they, they wrote those out and there's a couple of books you can get. I think one of them, the oldest one is called before the throne of grace, which is a collection of Spurgeon's pastoral prayers. And I would recommend that if you can find a copy of that, uh, I've got, I see them on eBay sometime. Those are wonderful pastoral prayers. And you get an idea of how Spurgeon prayed before his church. And, 
Banner of Truth did a, a, a book of his prayers called The Pastor in Prayer, I think. I think that's what that's called. So you can get that as well. And those are very instructive. Uh, so they both read the Bible. Susie tended to read the Bible through every year. And yet she preferred meditating on small portions of Scripture. And Spurgeon wrote a lot about meditation as well. Uh, he said meditation is like crushing the grape. Uh, you know, if you're making wine, you crush the grape. It's like it's getting the, the juice of Scripture uh, into your bloodstream. So you'll be like a John Bunyan. You bleed scripture, you know. Susie was like that, too. They both love to meditate on small portions of scripture. You see that when you read Spurgeon's sermons, how he would take just a little nugget from scripture and he would give an exposition. That would be sort of it would be based on on that little nugget of scripture. But Susie read through the Bible every year. Spurgeon says she in that regard, he, she read the Bible more than he did as far as just straight through readings where he would, he uh, would focus more of his attention on sections of scripture, but he knew all of the Bible. You read his sermons and the way his mastery of the old and the new Testament, his recall is amazing. That and hymns. Uh, when he was a boy, his grandmother paid him to memorize Isaac Watts hymns. And finally, she had to cut his pay because he was memorizing his, the hymns so quickly. And his grandfather offered him more money to kill rats. And so he gave up the hymn memorization business to, uh, to him to kill rats. But that was stuck in him. And I don't know if you could ever, I don't know if there is a Spurgeon sermon. If you've got any of Spurgeon sermons, I don't know if there are any Spurgeon sermons in which he's not quoting hymns which tells us something about the importance of hymns to him. And he, he didn't have those written down when he went to the pulpit. I mean, he had like a brief outline he would take up there, I believe. Those were from memory. He memorized those hymns from childhood, and they were at his recall all the time. So, I mean, you ask about prayer, I've sort of expanded into scripture reading and meditation and prayer. And Spurgeon said, like we would say, prayers, you know, we're communing, we're talking to the Lord. When you open the Bible and read scripture, God is speaking to us. And he believed the Bible was God's voice. There was no question in Spurgeon's mind, even though in his day and time later, especially later in his life, you know, the question of the inspiration authority of scripture uh, was being challenged. Never in Spurgeon's mind. It was the word of God. It is authoritative, sufficient, and air and infallible. And he just took it like that. Uh, this is God's voice. So uh, I, I kind of, I'm sorry, I took that a little further than you asked, but uh, that's a little bit of that. We can talk more about that if you like. Well, that was a blessing to me personally. Um, on page 78, you tell the story of the tragedy at the music hall. Um, in what ways does this event affect Charles and Susie's marriage? And what can we learn from how they both handled this situation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I've thought a lot about that. I really actually think there could be an entire book written uh, just about that. I've read a, so many newspaper articles. Uh, but anyway, just to, to kind of give you some context for, for your question, when Spurgeon came to London, there's a couple of hints that at least I think suggest that he suffered already from depression. Uh, from probably his teenage years at least. Uh, 
we don't know the severity of that, but there were times in which he he sunk before he came to London into deep despair. So just keeping that in the back of your mind, we, we get to 1856. He's married in January. They have twin sons in late September. His fame is unbelievable, really, already. Just a young guy himself. I mean, this is 1856. He's born in 1834. So he's, he's, not, uh, he's just 22 years old. So this is, uh, let's see, did I get my math right? 1856, June. Uh, yeah, 1856, they're married. He's 22 years old. Uh, so in October, he is, uh, the church is out of space. They're trying to figure out what to do. And so they're renting facilities to have at least one of the Sunday services and a larger facilities. At this time, they're in the new Park Street Chapel, which is, if you've been to London, it is uh, if you you're kind of looking at St. Paul's, uh, if you're or if you're at St. Paul's, you kind of you look south across the river, where uh, Shakespeare's uh, Globe Theater, uh, well the, the remodel of that now stands. That's really close to where the metro, where the New Park Street Chapel was. It was right there, right in that area. It only it held about 1,200 people, and not nearly sufficient. When Spurgeon preached there the first time, it had under 200 people. So it had been the most prominent church in England, uh, but it had fallen to the great decline until Spurgeon arrived, and almost instantly it started filling up. So the church is full. They're renting facilities. And so they rent a place called the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. It holds about 10,000 people. So this October evening in 1856, Spurgeon drives up with his entourage and uh, he sees this massive crowd outside that can't get in. It is, very, it is, in fact, difficult for them to get Spurgeon in the building. And he goes inside the building, and it is packed to capacity. He makes his way to the pulpit. He starts the service. And at some point early in the service, whether it was in the hymns or not, I can't remember at the moment, but early in the service, a several men or boys started uh, yelling, fire, fire, uh, the balconies are falling. There was no fire and there was no disaster uh, looming from that regard, but it created a panic. So you got 10,000 people packed in this building. And if, if there had not been a panic, and if there had been a true fire and there had been some sort of a way to bring order into that, they, there's easy, the folks could have exited out quietly and been safe, probably. But the, once the panic started, people were running for the exits. And people got knocked over and trampled to death. There's one story of a, a lady who was uh, knocked down. And then her sister was right behind her, and she was also knocked down. And they trampled over the sister who inadvertently smothered her sister, and she died. Uh, there's a story of a, a lady that was uh, pregnant, late pregnancy, who's there, who's trampled. And they, they're able to somehow get her out of the building. They couldn't save her life, and they tried to do an emergency C-section close by to try to save the baby. So I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? 
and they are not able to save the baby. So the baby dies as well. Uh, there are about 30 people who are hospitalized with serious injuries. Spurgeon still, he doesn't really know what's happening, but he knows something bad is happening and he collapses. And one paper reports that Spurgeon died that night. Uh, he's actually transported out of there. Uh, before he gets home, someone has come by his home, a deacon, I believe. He's come by to tell Susie, who's at home recovering with the twin boys, only a month after their birth. Uh, recovery was much shorter, uh, was much longer back then. And so she immediately hits her knees and starts praying. When Spurgeon gets in, he can't even talk to her. He is inconsolable. And so they get some items and they take Spurgeon out of his home and to outside of the city a bit to the home of his, one of his deacons where he tries to begin the process of recovery. And Susie and the twin boys, Thomas and Charles Jr. join him soon after there. So he is in a deep depression. I've got a letter that he wrote, or I've seen a letter. I don't have it. Uh, that he wrote to his mother, during that time. And Spurgeon's handwriting, typically at that time, it would have been mostly beautiful handwriting. Uh, later when gout is, is basically m uh, taking away his abilities and it, during those seasons of intense pain, he can't, he doesn't write as well, but this letter, he's really all over the, all over the page. There's stains on the letter. I you know, I don't know if they're tear stains or what, but Spurgeon wept uh, frequently. And he tells his mother that uh, not to ask him about the music hall disaster. He doesn't, he's not able to talk about it. Um, and so he, he just says that, you know, the devil is attacking, but he's confident that the Lord will get the victory through this. He also mentions that Susie is very ill. So this is all going on at this deacon's home. But one day he and Susie are out walking in a garden and the passage from Philippians comes to mind that uh, where Christ emptied himself, took the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the Lord has exalted him. That passage is that's Philippians two, right? So uh, somehow the Lord uses that to encourage and awaken and strengthen and minister to Spurge's heart. And he celebrates in that garden with Susie at his side. Well, two weeks after the music hall disaster, Spurgeon is preaching again. It, some, you know, there was doubt whether he would ever preach again. But now two weeks after, he's preaching at the New Park Street Chapel. And you can read that sermon. Uh, I, should have, I should have it open here. It's, uh, if you go to the sermons from 1856 and go to... Uh, uh, November, you'll find that sermon they preach. And he he even then doesn't really want to talk about it in the sermon. He mentions it briefly. Two weeks later, so four weeks after the disaster, he's back at the music hall again. Only this time he's not doing it at night. He does it in the morning. So the rest of the time he is at the music hall, he preaches in the morning rather than at night, which he thought would might mitigate from that sort of thing happening again. Well, in the meantime, after that disaster, the newspapers are just brutally attacking him and blaming him for what happened. One, some of them thought it was inappropriate for a 
minister to be holding services at a place that's set apart primarily for entertainment purposes. He's criticized for that. And then he certainly should not have gathered that sort of crowd. So they blamed him uh, for that. So you can read some of the articles of that day. If you can, if you have those, uh, if you're subscribed to those newspaper archives, as I am, you can read a lot about that. It's really sad and terrible and tragic. Everything about it. Uh, His church comes to his defense uh, and supports him throughout. All that to say, uh, this affected him deeply. One of his closest friends, William Williams, believed that it's one of the reasons that he died at age 57. So Spurgeon's 22 then, but he carried this with him the rest of his life. It was, it was such a trauma that things could trigger that trauma later. Uh, there are examples of that. One is he's traveling on a, across a mountain pass. Susie is actually with him on this trip and their pack mule slips and uh, it doesn't fall to death, but slips nevertheless. And Spurgeon gets off of, gets out of the carriage and he sits down and they can't move him. He, he won't move. He won't get up. He's just sort of lost. Uh, it takes them some time to, uh, get Spurgeon back on track mentally. Uh, he would, uh, and Susie felt that that was a result of the music hall disaster and other similar situations or other situations when he's with a crowd. Uh, there's uh, in the new book, uh, Your Soul Heaven, I tell the story of him preaching at a place where they there's 2,000 people packed inside of a building. There are thousands, there's probably that many more outside of the building. And they, they, they lock the doors so people can't get in because people are literally trying to break the doors down to get in. I mean, this is the sort of thing we, you know, if we put it in our day and time, we think like some rock star or some movie star, you know, kind of uh, the kind of attention that is following after Spurgeon. He's a, he's a country Baptist preacher who's moved to the city. Uh, and people are banging on this building. They're throwing rocks. They're banging their hands on the walls, trying to get in. And and Spurgeon is has to sit down. He says, "I he said, please guys, please let me come back and preach here another time." He's telling the leaders, and the crowd is saying, "Preach on, preach on." They want him to preach, and he finally gets through that and gets home. But it was the music hall disaster. It kept rearing its head. Now, how much of his depression was directly the cause of that, uh, we don't know. But there were times Susie would walk in and find him weeping. And he would say he didn't know why he was weeping. And she would read to him and pray with him and encourage him or just hold him. Now, all that to say, uh, Spurgeon thought it was his worst trait, his depression. He was not content to remain in the grips of depression. He fought depression by faith and prayer and scripture reading. Those, that's how they responded, both of them. Uh, Susie, as I said, would read the poetry of George Herbert to him, his favorite, and minister him like that. And she said that he would be weeping at times, as I mentioned, and she would weep with him. And she said the reason that she wept with him was simply because, excuse me, she loved him. And she wanted to him to know that 
And so they would weep together. It's hard for us to see that in Spurgeon. And we shouldn't think of him as this downcast man who's walking through life with his head low. Just the opposite. He's very joyful. He's very funny. I mean, you, the stories of Spurgeon walking into a room and everyone laughing within minutes, just rolling in the floor laughing at, at things Spurgeon would say and mannerisms <laughs> they would give. So he's a very funny man, a very joyful man, very humorous guy. But he told his church, he was very honest with his church. So I don't think most pastors today would do this probably. But he told them, he talked about his depression to his church. And he said, I hope that you never sink as low as I've sunk in seasons of my life. So that's how comfortable he was with his congregation and how much they loved him as well. So it affected them. Uh, certainly painful for both of them. Susie seeing her husband suffer so much with that. Spurgeon, the experience of it himself. I don't think Susie suffered from depression, though she had a boatload of problems herself. Uh, they prayed together. As I said, they read together. Uh, the church ministered to them. And they pulled together through all of their sufferings. This is one, one of the things that can happen in a marriage when trouble comes is that the couple will pull apart. They'll try to they'll pull apart from the Lord. And they'll pull apart from each other. Charles and Susie was just the opposite. They drew near to Christ and they drew near to each other. I don't know, you know, just from our perspective, looking back, I don't know that Spurgeon makes it without his wife. Uh, I think that I don't think we can really overestimate how important she was to him. And in fact, just my opinion, I don't think we have Charles Spurgeon as we have him today with all the books, all the interest. I mean, think about it. It's 2021. We're talking about Spurgeon's been dead 130 years. We're coming up on his 190th anniversary of his birth. <laughs> uh, he's the most tweeted Christian figure in history, I think. I, th I think he, I don't think Luther or Calvin or anybody gets more tweets than Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon is the subject of books, of tweets, of blog posts, of podcasts. Uh, the, my friends at Reftoons, you may know those guys, uh, the cartoons, uh, they, they often feature Spurgeon. <laughs> you can buy Spurgeon t-shirts, Spurgeon mugs, Spurgeon bust. Spurgeon is alive and well today in that regard, in America at least, where he said he'd be most remembered, and it's true. There's Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. There's the Spurgeon Library, the most beautiful, uh, a most beautiful library. If you love Spurgeon, you got to go there. Uh, Jason Allen's doing a wonderful job leading Midwestern. And Jeff Chang is the uh, curator. Wonderful, young Spurgeon scholar that I love dearly as well. But I don't know that we have any of that. Or we don't have it to the degree that we have it without Susanna Spurgeon, his wife. That's how important she was. And I'm not sure he gets, he gets through the depression without her. So he needed a wife, but not just any wife. He needed this particular wife. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.